All right. Well, after our time together last week, a few of you came up to me afterwards and said, can we look at all of chapter 24 in Matthew? And since it's an all-request weekend here at Calvary Chapel, (laughs) you got it. Let's open up to Matthew chapter 24. And last week we looked at verses 1 through 14, so this morning we will begin in verse 15. Jesus speaking. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there shall be a great tribulation such has not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, look here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, even possibly the, even the elect. See how I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Last week, while we were in church, as tensions grew in Europe, President Putin made the announcement that if there were any thought of military interjection from any other nation, it would warrant a nuclear response. He then therefore put all of his nuclear defenses on the highest alert that they have been in our lifetime. The foreign minister of Russia then later in the week reiterated what President Putin had said by stating again that if a no-fly zone or any other type of military intervention were to take place by any other nation, including NATO, they would respond in a nuclear response. Our world has not seen this tension since the Cuban Missile Crisis back in the 1960s. There are troublesome times on the horizon. And coming out of a two-year pandemic, where almost every institution of America has been discredited in the eyes of the people because of the lies that we have heard time and time and time again. Now, we are looking at a military conflict in the world. And the events such as these beg the question, Lord, are you coming back soon? And that was the reasoning for us to begin looking at Matthew chapter 24. For Matthew chapter 24 is known as the Olivet Discourse. It is the answer to two questions that the disciples had, and those two questions are found in Matthew 24, verse 3. 
Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming, and the end of the age? Two questions. The second question in two parts. It appears that Jesus then begins to answer the second question specifically, believing uh, that the first question has to do with the destruction of Jer- uh, Jerusalem and the temple there in 70 AD, Jesus then wants to lift their eyes and to point their uh, attention to the longer vision, knowing that the gospel would continue throughout the known world after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and now to this day continues throughout the world. But the Bible tells us clearly that Jesus Christ will physically return to this earth. And much is written about it. There were 333 prophecies concerning his first coming, over 600 concerning his second. Jesus held the religious leaders accountable for knowing the signs of the times in which they live. How much more should we be aware of the signs of the times in which we currently live? Now, please, I understand church history. I understand that people have been saying since the New Testament itself that Jesus could return at any moment. But but may I say, excuse me, that we are 2,000 years closer than we've ever been before. What's happening in the world around us would give us further evidence that the instability, the insecurity, the uncertainty that we are currently seeing is again lending weight to the idea of his return. Now, you may say, well, and rightfully so, that we've had wars and we've had pestilence and we've had famines from the the time that Jesus Christ ascended into heaven. Well, there is one stark difference. That is, in 1948, Israel became a nation again. And from the reforming of Israel prophesied in the book of Ezekiel, We know that we are getting closer to the Lord's return for the stage is being set. Now, no one knows the day or the hour. I wouldn't even presume that. But we certainly can see the signs of the times. Some may say that we are too concerned with the Lord's return. But I believe that understanding the Lord's imminent return allows us to live as Christians. Why do I mean by that? Living in an urgency of the Lord's return, number one, John would tell me that I should live as he has called me to live in holiness. It requires me to search my heart to see if I am right before God, to know that he could return at any moment for his church, and to know that I may be standing in his presence. There's an urgency to everything with an imminent understanding of the return of Jesus Christ. I believe that it's easy to show and to demonstrate that through the New Testament, the disciples lived in that urgency, believing that Jesus could return at any moment. Secondly, a study of prophecy helps us focus on the eternal rather than becoming fixated on the temporal. This world is passing away. We know that. It's only a matter of time. Jesus made it abundantly clear that we cannot serve two masters. Jesus showed us very clearly 
that our affections cannot be torn between this world and him. As one wrote in the New Testament, he said, to make yourself a friend of the world is to make yourself at enmity with God. Prophecy allows us to refocus our attention to the eternal, which I believe now more than ever we as Christians need to do. As we see the world in the condition that it is, it doesn't appear that it's going to get better, but worse before the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad you came from an uplifting message this morning? But God told us these things beforehand because he loves us, that we may be prepared, that we may look to the sky and say, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly, to keep our eyes on what is truly important, and that is the work in which he has set before us to do. Jesus now focuses in on a single event of the tribulation period. A seven-year period of time that Daniel outlines for us in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. This last seven-year period of time is outlined for us in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. The events of this seven-year period are found within those chapters, and it concludes with, of course, the physical return of Jesus Christ in Revelation 19. They asked Jesus, what will be the sign of your coming? and the end of the age. In verses 4 through 14, he gave a panoramic view of the tribulation period. Then in verse 15, he answers the question, this is the sign, this abomination of desolation. This is what the sign will be. Now, it is imperative that you understand that when he says, when you see these things, That term is in the plural in the Greek, and he's talking about the Jewish people, not simply the disciples that he's speaking with at that moment. When you see these things, I could address it to you and say that when you see these things, I'm talking about a plurality of people, and therefore I'm including those that would be living in the time of the tribulation period. But what is the abomination of desolation? And what does it mean more specifically is the question I want to answer this morning. Well, the event is talked about throughout the Bible. If you take a quick look with me, you'll notice that in Daniel chapter 8, verse 13, this event is talked about. It should be on the screen behind me. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that Certain one who was speaking, how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? Then in Daniel 9, the next chapter, verse 27, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, that is the Antichrist. But in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. In Daniel 11.31, And forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. 
Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. And in verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 11 of Daniel. And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. The passages in Daniel, as we had learned, is a parallel illustration through the life of one called Anicus Epiphanes, who came into Jerusalem to invade and to conquer, who slaughtered a pig on the uh, altar there in the temple, and then also resurrected a statue of Zeus and demanded it to be worshipped. Now, if that was the end of it all, the Daniel prophecy would be fulfilled perfectly. But Jesus, can, you know, he goes one step further and confounds everyone by saying, when you see the abomination of desolation coming, that Daniel spoke about. Meaning it is still yet. Now, Jesus spoke this after the defilement of the temple that Anicus Epiphanes uh, uh, did. So he's talking about something else. What is this something else that he is talking about? Well, Paul goes on to articulate it to the Gentile church of the Thessalonians when he says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3-4, through 4, he says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Paul is saying that the fulfillment of the abomination of desolation is the event in which the Antichrist himself goes into the Jewish temple and demands to be worshipped as God. Which, of course, occurs... In Revelation chapter 13. Revelation 13 verses 14 through 15. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth. By those signs in which was granted uh, to do in the sight of the beast. Telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast. Who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast. That the image of the beast should be should both speak and cause many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. The false prophet that precedes the Antichrist sets up this image of the Antichrist in the temple there in Jerusalem fulfilling the abomination of desolation. So the question begs itself, why? Why is this the event that Jesus points to? Why is this the sign that Jesus points to? It is a sign that shows that three and a half years later, Jesus Christ will physically return to this world. It is a sign that shows that Satan has once and for all be, been ultimately defeated. This is Satan's last hurrah. This is his attempt to finally complete what he began before the foundations of the world. If you go with me to Ezekiel chapter 28, 
if you turn there with me in your Bible. Ezekiel chapter 28. It's after chapter 27 and before chapter 29. In this proclamation against the king, of, the king of Tyre, we noticed that last time that more than just the king of Tyre is being addressed here because if you notice with me in the address of the king of Tyre, in verses 14 and 15, he is called an anointed cherubim, which is an angel who covers... He says, I establish you, and you were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day that you were created till iniquity was found in you. In verse 13, this prophecy also concerns the moment that he was in the Garden of Eden. Verse 13, you were in Eden, the Garden of God. And every precious stone was your covering. In this, which Hebrew prophecy often does, in the rebuke of the king of Tyre, the Spirit of God has also woven in this an an explanation of the fall of Satan. Why did Satan fall? He fell because, if you notice with me, in verse... Starting in verse 2, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is lifted up and you say, I am a God, I sit in the seat of the gods, in the midst of the sea, yet you are a man and not a God, though you set your heart as uh, that of a God. Then he goes on in verse 6. Because you have set your heart as the heart of a God, behold, therefore I will bring strangers against you, the most terrible of the nations. This is the iniquity that God says that he finds in the heart of Satan in verse 15. This is it, that he desired to be worshipped as God is worshipped. So now the abomination of desolation makes a little bit more sense, doesn't it? Satan finally trying to capitalize and exploit that moment by creating an image of himself in the temple to be worshipped as God. This is from before the foundations of the world. This is what Satan always wanted to accomplish. But he had another moment in the corridors of history. And it's alluded to here in Ezekiel chapter 28, if you'll turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. After man was created and God saw that all things were good, Satan as a serpent, and I believe this is a manifestation of Satan. Revelation tells us very clearly, he calls the serpent, the serpent of old, Satan himself, the devil. Satan comes and tempts Eve. Now notice the manner in which he tempted her. What did he tempt her with? Look at this. Now the serpent was more cunning than any of the beasts of the field which the Lord God had made. Verse 1. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, Shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, 
But the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God says that you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it. She wasn't even clear about the directions. Lest you die. In verse 4, Then the serpents said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows, notice this, verse 5, that in that day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like what? God. This is his one string on his guitar. This is his primary objective. He wants to sit in the place of God. He desires to be worshipped as God. And of course, it was pride who lifted him to that point. When creation was given the designation of good and in its perfection, Satan promised them this opportunity, knowing full well through the deception in which he brought that this would not bring them the status of God as he so desired, as they so desired, but it would destroy them. Oh, their eyes were open to good and to evil, but also came sin and death. And where Adam and Eve failed, one 2,000 years later, would be born in the barn of Bethlehem under the star. And when he was brought out after his baptism by John, when Jesus walked into the wilderness after fasting for 40 days, tempted by Satan himself. The very last of those three temptations was Satan saying to him, I will give you all of this if you simply bow down and worship me. It's because Satan had the dominion that man was initially given. He took that dominion at the fall of man. He became the ruler of this world. And Jesus said, get by. Jesus said, no way. It's not going to happen. For I shall not worship any but the Lord thy God. And where Adam and Eve failed, Jesus succeeded perfectly. So after the removal of the church, the world is plunged into a seven-year period of time. The Antichrist will be revealed. And for the first three and a half years of his reign, he will appear to be a man of peace and he'll bring about some stability and he'll answer world questions and he'll be that political, that military, that religious figure that the world has always wanted. But then in the middle of it, the Bible says that he'll be struck down. It'll appear that he is mortally wounded and then he'll rise again. Boy, I think I read that somewhere else. See, Satan is not a creator, he's a counterfeiter. And whatever God does, Satan just simply counterfeits it and tries to make something opposed to what God has created. But in that apparent resuscitation, Satan fills the Antichrist and plunges the world into the last three and a half years of that tribulation period in which he will resurrect a statue in the temple, of himself, and demand to be worshipped as God. And that's the backstory to this event. But little does Satan know that this is the beginning of his end, isn't it? Because three and a half years later, the, the clouds will part, the sky will rip open, and Jesus Christ on a white horse, followed by all of us, will return, and with the word of his mouth, 
he will destroy the Antichrist and the false prophet, casting them into the lake of fire forever and ever. It is interesting to me today that what we see happening in our society, of course, I believe is all preparing the world for the arrival of the Antichrist. Each and every month, each and every week, each and every day, we take one step closer being conditioned and being prepared. Today, as we see in our society saturated by the woke ideologies that the world is adopting, you find that in the heart of the woke thinking, it is not the pursuant of truth. For Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Within the woke ideology, when you get to the essence and the core of it all, it's all about power. Who controls? Who rules? Who benefits? That's the determination for all things. It is interesting in that striving for justice, and if you really want to confuse someone who has adopted a woke ideology, ask them to define for you what they mean by justice. You will find very quickly that they really don't have a firm understanding of how they define that word. But in everything in the ideology, when it comes to intersectionality or whatever it may be, it's all about who oppresses who and who has the power. It is interesting to me that that would indicate to me very clearly, because of its dismissal of truth and its pursuit of power, that this is certainly not an ideology from God. Because Jesus said, I am the truth. The truth is nothing to be embarrassed of. The truth is nothing that we should shy away from. It is nothing that we should apologize for. Even though they may believe in their social constructionism that the world should be deconstructed into a new image, and again, if you ask him what that image is, it all has to do with power. Who has the power? Who has the ability to exercise justice? And again, these words are somewhat free-floating in this ideology. But at the core of it, it's all about power. Satan was always concerned about power. That was his whole concern from the very beginning. Power. Who had power? It is interesting that Paul made it abundantly clear in Colossians chapter 2 that we should not be taken captives by the various philosophies of this world that undermine the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. That these philosophies will rob you and cheat you and take from you those things that God has for you. So as we engage in the world, as we move forward in this world, let us not be apologetic for the truth. Let us stand firmly on the truth in humility, in love. It is interesting that Paul the Apostle, when speaking to the Philippian church, He said very clearly that the mindset that we should have as Christians was the same mindset that Jesus Christ had, that of humility and sacrificing on the behalf of others, when it seems like the woke ideology is all about self. And this is where the real problem begins. The the whole consuming idea of self is at the root of, of all that the Antichrist wants to promote. Jesus said it this way in Mark 8.34, if you look with me. 
should be on the screen. And when he called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him with what? Deny himself. Pastor, what does that mean? What does that look like? The best way I can illustrate that for you is this. It's a simple statement that Jesus made. Not my will, but your will be done, O Lord. And to take up his cross and to follow after me. The whole premise of Christianity is dying to self. Satan's whole idea was the exaltation of self, himself. So why should we be surprised by the exaltation of those under the submission of the ruler of this world to be the exaltation of self itself? Self itself. Aren't you glad I, I thought that one through well? This is why the abomination of desolation is so important. In this, in this one event is the culmination of all of these things in one moment prior to the return of Jesus Christ. And of course, the warning continues in Matthew chapter 24, if you turn back there with me. <clears throat> Notice what he says in verse 16. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetops not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, notice this, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. The term elect is one that we have to carefully interpret. For example, context is key. Jesus, of course, is speaking to the Jewish people here who were the chosen people of God at the time in which he was speaking. They are still the chosen people of God. Paul makes that abundantly clear in chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans. And unless you understand that idea that he completely brings about in chapter 11 of Romans, you're not going to understand chapters 9 and 10. We as Christians also have become the elect because we've been grafted into the vine. The vine hasn't been removed. We have been grafted into it. So he is talking about individuals during the tribulation period, which, if you notice the focus of Daniel and the focus of Revelation, he is speaking and addressing the Jewish people during the tribulation period. So the word elect here are believers, but Jewish believers, that will find themselves in the midst of the tribulation. Now, if a Jewish person gets saved now, they will therefore be taken in the rapture. But if a Jewish person gets saved after the rapture of the church, they will then be required to go through the tribulation period. But there will be Gentiles saved during the tribulation period also. And that's clear from the book of Revelation. 
And those individuals will be faced with an ultimatum that the Antichrist will give. And that is either receive the mark on the forehead or on the forehand. And if you receive that mark, you then pledge your allegiance to the Antichrist and salvation is no longer available for you in Jesus Christ. Scary thought. But those who resist and refuse, their life will be required of them as a martyr for the faith. So let us be careful. Now, in the New Testament, the word elect is used to encompass all of us. But let us not simply uh, sloppily apply the term without considering the context in which we find the word. Does that make sense? Good. If it doesn't, I'll pray for you. Notice what he says here. In verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Signs and wonders can be counterfeited. We have saw that from the Exodus, didn't we? When Moses came in, of course, the Egyptian magicians were able to counterfeit to a certain degree the supernatural events that were taking place there. All signs and wonders do not necessarily point to Jesus Christ. We must test the spirits, as John encourages us to do in his first epistle. We must weigh these things out to know and to understand if they are truly pointing us to Jesus or if they are drawing us away from Jesus. For example, notice in the Gospels when the religious leaders accuse Jesus of being uh, of Satan. They were trying to account for the miracles in which he rendered, the supernatural acts. And of course, undoubtedly, they had the magicians of Egypt in mind, for example, when they said that. He is working on behalf of Satan, they said. We must be discerning in our times of confusion. Discernment comes by knowing the word of God. That's why we must read it from cover to cover, backwards and forwards, from Genesis to Revelation. I'll go one step farther. Read the tables at the back of the Bible and even memorize the maps. Take it all in because it is the only thing that will keep us anchored and grounded in such times of confusion as this. Notice with me that Paul warned of these false signs and wonders in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Notice what he says. He says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. This lawless one is the Antichrist. With all power, signs, and lying wonders, with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they may be saved. John goes on again, and we read here in, in Revelation 13, 14 through 15 again. 
And he who deceives those who dwell on the earth by signs, which was granted to him to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was also, he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Lying signs and wonder. Our God is truly a God of miracles. But the miracles in which God renders always point people to Jesus Christ. Always. Next week we will continue our look at this 24th chapter. So read ahead. And next week we are going to look at the rider on the white horse. And what does the imagery mean that John gives us in that depiction found in Revelation chapter 19. So stay tuned. Same bat channel, same bat time.